The last episode of The Ransomware Files described perhaps one of the most odd and intriguing criminal cases involving ransomware. Moses Luis Zagala Gonzalez is a cardiologist. He was charged by the U.S. government in May 2022 with creating ransomware programs called Jigsaw and Thanos. The government alleges he's an old-school hacker from the late 1990s who got into ransomware as a side hustle alongside his career as a doctor in Ciudad Bolivar, a city in southeastern Venezuela. He's accused essentially of conspiring with users of his ransomware to carry out ransomware attacks on on victim networks. Moses is now 55 years old, which is pretty far out of the typical age range of someone in the ransomware business. By all appearances, he comes from a real high-achieving family. There's a brother who's a dental specialist, another brother is a lawyer, and yet another is in a high-ranking job in the national police. People who know Moses and his family are dumbfounded and say the accusations could absolutely not be true. I'm still hallucinating because he's a medical colleague and he was my university professor. Is the U.S. government's case against him accurate in that Moses Zagala is a criminal polymath? There, there's just too much here. There, there, it, it seems too, too difficult for this to be exactly true the way it's written. Could anyone this smart be that sloppy? And it, and it, and it seems like the answer is no. In part two of Dr. Ransomware, we're going to try to answer some of the big questions around this fascinating case. Is it possible for a medical doctor to be deeply involved in cybercrime? Will he be extradited to the United States? What does he and his family have to say? We also have information that suggests what legal defense Moses might employ were he to face the charges levied against him. We'll analyze how that defense might stand up against the evidence the U.S. government has so far released. This is The Ransomware Files. I'm Jeremy Kirk. In this podcast miniseries, I'm exploring the impact of ransomware, which is one of the greatest crime waves to ever hit the internet. Schools, hospitals, and companies have fallen victim to cybercriminals encrypting their data and demanding payment. But IT pros are fighting back, and they have stories of resilience and fortitude. I'm Dina Templereston, host of Click Here a new podcast making sense of all things cyber and intelligence. We'll introduce you to a cast of characters you may not have even known existed. From online extortionists. Then he asked for a ransom. He asked for $1,337 in Bitcoin. To hackers with a message. We saw the propaganda and the disinformation, and we just decided something needs to be done about this. To cyber guys just trying to keep us safe. Uh, The first message that I received on my phone said, it looks like you're going to have a bad day. Hackers used to just target big corporations, and now they're coming for you. Do you think you guys are ready for the next ransomware attack? Oh, I never want to jinx myself with that. (laughs) Click here. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts.
To understand more about Moses Sagala and this story, we need to understand more about Venezuela. For at least the last 15 years, Venezuela has faced particularly trying circumstances. Political and economic turmoil have had a ruinous effect on the daily lives of Venezuelans. The country has been under sanction by the United States and other countries for years for alleged human rights issues, corruption, and authoritarianism. And although Venezuela is rich in oil, falling oil prices over the last few years and government mismanagement has meant a continuing economic crisis. It's made life extremely difficult for its 30 million people. There's high inflation, high unemployment, and for those who do have jobs, low wages and healthcare has suffered greatly. For example, if you get sick and go to the hospital in Venezuela, there's a chance the facility may not have adequate access to clean water. It may not have much medicine. The group Doctors Without Borders says the health system there is in tatters. Doctors face very trying conditions. While hospitals are supposed to be safe places, in Venezuela, they've often turned into battlegrounds. Doctors have often been the most vocal about the country's deteriorating conditions. That has made them targets of opponents, even when they're on duty in a hospital. Ana Vanessa Herrero is a journalist in Venezuela who's been helping me with this episode. She's written about Venezuela's healthcare system and has witnessed confrontations in hospitals. In fact, in 2014, she was trying to interview a patient about the conditions and was chased out of a hospital by men with guns. It's still violent, very, very violent. So being a doctor here is not only heroic, you need a lot of skills to survive being a doctor in a public hospital in Venezuela, not only because of the wages, but because you're actually in real danger if you work at a hospital here. In 2019, National Public Radio published a story describing the low wages of doctors and nurses. One doctor told NPR he made just $12 a month from two jobs at public institutions. It's estimated that half of the country's doctors have left the country because of the poor conditions. Now, medical professionals who work for private clinics may, of course, make more. However, one doctor has stayed around, Moses Sagala. He works at a private clinic in Ciudad Bolivar, which is a city of about 400,000 people. After the charges were announced, Many people took to social media to describe their shock. A man named Marcos Lima Martinez tweeted this. The news has shocked us, but I think we have to be cautious before making judgments. He was my professor of cardiology, and I can attest that he is a very prepared person. Surely, Dr. Zagala has a lot to say, and it is fair that he should be able to defend himself. Anna reached Pedro Jose Yepez, who was Moses' student around 2013. He says that Moses was brilliant, strict, and astute. Pedro tweeted this after the news about Moses became public. I'm still hallucinating because he's a medical colleague and he was my university professor. Anna also reached Marcos Rodriguez Mejias, who is now a doctor and was also one of Moses' students. He says that Moses encouraged his students to work hard and travel around the world. In turn, Moses would talk about his family and wines he likes and his travels. Moses' way of teaching was different than other teachers, Marcos says. He was smart and very didactic. Marcos says he projected the image of a man who is quite morally responsible. 
Marco says Moses told his students that they should make an effort to live with dignity. Overall, Marco says he has doubts that Moses was capable of doing what he's accused of. Other Venezuelans had lighthearted reactions to all this. Someone tweeted in reply to Pedro Jose Yepes's tweet that Moses is our quote, own Walter White, in reference to the lead character in the TV series Breaking Bad. Walter's a high school chemistry teacher who, when faced with a terminal illness, starts manufacturing and selling illicit drugs. Now, before we get too far into this episode, I want to make clear here, as I did in part one, that the allegations made by the U.S. government against Moses have not been tested in court. He is charged in federal court in the Eastern District of New York with one count of attempted computer intrusions and one count of conspiracy to commit computer intrusions. No part of this podcast should be taken as implicating his guilt. However, we are going to explore if, hypothetically, aspects of the U.S. government's allegations may be true. With all that background about Venezuela, what's daily life like for Moses in Ciudad Bolivar? It suffers from poor water supplies, erratic electricity, and has been a hub for political protests for years. What you're hearing is the sound of a protest. For years, demonstrators in Venezuela banged on pots and pans to protest food shortages. We might have a clue to a part of Moses' life from a Twitter account we found with a username of at Moses The account has been deleted, but hundreds of tweets from it are still on the internet archive. We weren't able to definitively link this account with Moses Agala. The photograph on the account was fuzzy, but sort of looked like three people who resembled other people we'd seen on Zagala's social media accounts. Between 2019 and 2020, it was a really active account. The person controlling it would frequently reply to tweets from another Twitter account run by Hidro Bolivar. That's the water utility for the state of Bolivar in Venezuela, which includes Ciudad Bolivar. The person tweeted sometimes several times a day about the water supply issues in the state. It was often biting sharp commentary with kind of a dark tinge. For example, Hidro Bolivar would post photos of a meeting. At Moses Sagala would reply, Half of the city is without water. What is this meeting about? A birthday? In another, Hidro Bolivar posted photos of some infrastructure work on a pump motor. And At Moses Sagala responded, They totally abandoned the water service. They stayed on Twitter. Nothing else. I chatted with Anna under the assumption that this account probably belonged to Moses. It shows you how the day-to-day life in this place in Venezuela is. So he, he is a doctor who is actually very worried about the water, running water situation. And he's constantly going on Twitter to, you know, demand the access to water services. As you heard in the last episode, we've been trying to get in touch with Moses since shortly after the charges were announced. Moses has a brother in Caracas named Guillermo. He runs his own prosthodontics clinic, which is a dental specialty that can involve procedures such as replacing teeth. Anna reached out to Guillermo on Facebook Messenger. So I need to tell you what happened today. Um, I contacted Guillermo on Facebook. Oh, great. What What did he have to say? 
Well, I said that you and I were working on this, and uh, he immediately attacked me. Hmm, yeah, not a great start. Here's how it went down over Facebook Messenger. Hello, doctor. Good day, and thanks for adding me. You really must believe that we are stupid, or we don't have enough to eat. Do me the favor of bothering me more. I'm going to file a complaint for harassment. I understand your annoyance. It's the first time I've contacted you. If you want to talk, I remain at the ready. Signore, le repite, haga el favor de Miss, I'll repeat. Please do not bother me anymore. I'm going to take photos of this chat. And I'm going to report you for harassment. Enough hurting people. You don't care about anyone's life. Garbage. Basuras. While Anna tackles the tough task of contacting Moses' family, let's look at a hypothetical tangent relevant to this case. What drives someone to get into cybercrime? Financial need would be an obvious reason, but if what the U.S. government alleges is at least somewhat true, which is at minimum Moses is a seasoned software hacker, could there be something deeper in play here than just earning some side money? If you've listened to part one, you'll remember that in the late 1990s, Moses was allegedly part of an elite group of hackers called High Cracking University. It's alleged that he operated under the nickname Asclepius, who is the Greek god of medicine. High Cracking University specialized in, quote, cracking software or removing digital protections. Software vendors put those protections in place to try to prevent using the software without paying for it. But High Cracking University's mission wasn't to profit by selling unlicensed software, but rather to conquer the intellectual challenge of breaking it. Thomas Holt is a professor in the School of Criminal Justice at Michigan State University. He researches the behavioral traits of people who get involved in computer hacking and malware. Thomas says he sees recognizable patterns in the criminal complaint against Moses. Some of what you describe and some of what's in the criminal complaint matches with what you can observe about aspects of the hacker culture even today. And to some degree also, the way in which an economic situation might affect the choice to go into, say, a legit career versus a cybercrime career, it makes sense. Um, There's a lot of that, obviously, in Romania and certain parts of Russia with the notion that there's uh, national police tolerance of foreign targeting, uh, where you know, just as long as you're not messing up too hard here, we're going to allow you to keep going. It's a perfect combination. Someone has monetizable hacking skills, an economic need, and there's a low chance of getting caught. Still, Thomas says there's something incongruous about what the government has described. How would a cardiologist find the time to be just so heavily involved in malware development? Given the amount of work that would be involved, this would not have been something I imagine he could have pulled off without anyone noticing the amount of time he spent on a computer. I would think that there'd be quite a bit of time management unless his family wasn't around or gave him a lot of time. It sort of calls to question when was he doing the work and where and to what extent did his day job suffer at times because of his side hustles. Not only did this person have the time to develop ransomware, but Asclepius had time for his customers too. 
Asclepius was polite, responsive, and quite helpful to those who bought the tools, even when customers aired mild criticisms. For example, in June 2019 on one hacking forum, someone wrote this to Asclepius in regards to the Jigsaw ransomware. The ransomware's design looks like crap. You should work on that. Thanks for your opinion. I did add a metallic skin to the decryptor, but for the ransomware itself, that would increase the size without adding functionality. So I'm not that convinced to do it. But there is already a transparency class in the skinning system, very user-friendly, included in the project for those who want to look better and wish to activate that too. Even the government's criminal complaint notes the positive feedback received by the developer of Jigsaw and Thanos. Here's another exchange with the Jigsaw customer. Sir, I really need to say this. You are the best developer ever. Thank you. That is nice to hear. I'm very flattered and proud. That sort of response is almost like, uh, I don't know, criminal job satisfaction? Here's Tom Holtz. Seeing some of the comments in the criminal complaint also from customers makes me wonder if there's some degree of uh, ego development that's at play here too, where even if he didn't make gobs and gobs of money, the notion that people are giving him extremely positive feedback and talking about how simple the tool is to use, how you don't have to have a substantive coding background in order to be effective, even running the affiliate model, that to me speaks of someone who's probably in it to some extent for the community recognition. Perhaps that, that notion that I am good, I'm competent, people like what I do. And you saw that you know, to some degree in the 90s where it was about social reinforcement, even to some degree still there's some of that, but the criminal side of it, particularly the ransomware side of it, you don't see that ego stroke being quite as uh, comparable to the profits that a person's going to make. There's also what Thomas calls the deviant aspect of cybercrime. Could be that the the deviant aspect of it may be slightly attractive also. There's a lot of uh, fun in being bad and that sort of emotional management part of it uh, that, yeah. that could be at play here also. Now we have a few things in the mix. A bit of ego, deviant attraction, money, and perhaps even some necessity. So another big question is, how much money did the development and sale of Jigsaw and Thanos net? The short answer is, there are some figures, but overall it's unclear. We can look to the 20-page criminal complaint written by FBI Special Agent Chris Clark to get some answers. So, let's try to tally the money. We don't start off at a great point. The FBI openly admits in the criminal complaint that the total number of copies of malware allegedly sold by Moses is unknown. We know that Jigsaw sold for 500 US dollars a copy. The underlying source code was available for $3,000. The FBI alleges that Moses took in $4,580 for malware between August 2019 and April 2020. That was via an unspecified e-commerce platform, which may have been choppy. But we don't know exactly what was sold to get that money. Now, Moses is also accused of developing Thanos, which, if you remember, builds other customized ransomware programs. It's known in the malware business as a ransomware builder. Now, this is where the real money may have been. 
The FBI alleges that forensics data shows that 38 copies of Thanos were sold. It appears Thanos was offered for between $500 to $800. So 38 times 500 is $19,000. So we're up to $23,580. But Moses is also accused of leading a ring of cyber criminals in what's called an affiliate program centered around Thanos. There's a whole cybercriminal economy around ransomware, and an important part of it are these programs. In a ransomware affiliate program, someone supplies the ransomware and other infrastructure, and separate groups of cybercriminals use it to infect organizations. In that arrangement, usually the cybercriminals who use the ransomware pay a 20-30% to 30 share of a ransom back to the ransomware developer. We know that there were quite a few victims of ransomware programs that were created by Thanos. Those ransomware variants went by the names such as Prometheus, Haron, Oravadon, Spook, Hackbit, and Midas. They infected businesses and organizations around the world throughout last year. Peru, Mexico, Canada, Chile, Brazil, Italy, France, and more. We don't know the terms under which Thanos was offered, but we can try to at least get a lowball figure of what it might have brought its developer. So in 2021, the average ransom demand in the US was around $2.2 million. Now, of course, that's just the demand. That's not the amount that victims have actually paid. The amount usually comes down after negotiations, and of course, sometimes isn't paid at all. All right, so let's just pretend that a company hit by a variant of Thanos pays a $500,000 ransom. So that's just a quarter of the average ransom asked in 2021. So what's the cut for the developer of Thanos? Let's just take the low side 20%. 20% 20 of 500,000 is $100,000. So even if just three of those deals went through in a year, that's 300,000 US dollars. That kind of money would put someone as a top statistical earner really anywhere in the world, let alone Venezuela. Now, this is just back of napkin speculation, and we don't know the full details, but it's an idea of just how much money a ransomware affiliate program could potentially generate for someone. Meanwhile, Anna dug up something very interesting. After the charges against Moses were announced in May 2022, several Venezuelans took to Facebook, Twitter, and WhatsApp. WhatsApp has a big role in distributing community news. Anna says that people write a message, which then gets forwarded to several groups and then on and on. It's how people get information in Venezuela, particularly outside the capital. Anna found a message that Moses' wife, Rosani, had posted on WhatsApp. Wait, wait, wait. So, so say that again. So she says that his email has been hacked and that somebody else is using his identity for all this stuff. She says, you know, he's not the person that they say he is. He's a good person. He's a doctor. He's not a hacker. And this is very irregular. And uh, he, she says that we're looking for lawyers here and in the United States to fight back. Here's the message in full. First of all, we're going through a terrible, hard situation as a family. We are in shock, but seeking legal advice both here and in the United States to defend ourselves. Moises had his email accounts hacked a few years ago, and apparently they were used along with his identity to scam. 
We are just like you, shocked with the news. It's something we don't wish on anyone. With the greatest respect, I clarify that Moises is a man of integrity, a family man with values and principles who will never lend himself to such acts. God willing, we'll get the right legal team to clear his name. This was an incredible find, particularly since we'd been having so much trouble directly getting a hold of Moses. If Moses ever did face the charges in a U.S. court, it appears he may claim he's been hacked. We're going to look more closely later to see how that squares with the evidence that the U.S. government has cited. But at least in the court of public opinion in Venezuela, the explanation immediately resonated. Take a woman named Amelia Guevara, who described herself on Facebook as a Zagala family friend. I know Moises and his family, and they are a beautiful family, very united. I have never known them to be involved in anything out of the ordinary. Gustavo and Carlos, who are excellent lawyers, are like Moises, tremendous professionals. Moises was Efren's doctor, and we verified his excellent professionalism and that he is an excellent person. I have a lot of faith, and I pray to God that they can clarify this mess. With today's technology, unusual things happen. People hack accounts and impersonate identities. Because this is happening to Moises and his family, it could happen to us. She mentioned how people hack accounts and impersonate identities, and she's totally right. Identity theft happens everywhere. Also, many people in Venezuela have fallen victim to their WhatsApp accounts being hijacked by fraudsters. Could someone who knew Moses and perhaps his background in computers think he might make the perfect fall guy? There's actually a compelling reason to support the theory that maybe someone has set up Moses. Often when police and security experts are trying to figure out the in-real-life identities of hackers, they refer to something called operational security. It's the term for the methods used by people online to prevent other people from easily figuring out who they really are. The simplest one is don't use your real name. Another one is don't start maliciously hacking under your home IP address. There's many, many other tricks, too, to ensure that one's in-real-life identity isn't connected to an online persona. The operational security that is described in the criminal complaint against Moses is absolutely disastrous. In fact, it's so bad that you think no one in their right mind would have committed crime under those conditions. The affidavit contains all kinds of errors that not even a rookie cybercriminal would make. The mistakes are so egregious, it could make one think that maybe someone else is in fact trying to point a finger at Moses Sagala. Let's look at the criminal complaint. Much of what the government has revealed so far revolves around Gmail and PayPal accounts that allegedly belong to Moses. Alexander Mindlin is the U.S. assistant attorney who will prosecute the case. Here he explains some of that evidence. But the complaint lays out an extremely large number of ways in which the conduct is attributable. Among other things, uh, the way that Zagala advertised this software was that he would post on various sort of underground forums using various of his nicknames, 
um, advertising the software, right, and asking people to contact him, usually on uh, one of a couple of different Jabber addresses, Jabber being just a, a messaging protocol that is uh, locally stored in general um, on the server belonging to the, to the, to the relevant user. Uh, and in addition, he would um, sometimes request payments at a certain PayPal. So the most direct connection to start off with there is that PayPal has said that the, the registered user of that particular PayPal address is a person who gave his name as Moises Sagala and gave his email address as moisessagala at gmail.com and, and gave his street address as various addresses in Ciudad Bolivar um, uh, belonging in turn to, to Moises Sagala. Uh, in turn, uh, if you ask Google who, who's the registered user of moisessagala at gmail.com, they'll tell you, well, it's a person who gave the name Moises Sagala um, with a certain telephone number. And that number is also the registered number for the PayPal account. And if you then uh, uh, obtain, as the government did, the, the contents of the moisesagala at gmail.com Gmail account, there's a lot more uh, attribution evidence in there. When the FBI dug around in that moisesagala at gmail account, they say they found chats about Jigsaw, files about cryptocurrency wallets held by someone nicknamed Nosiforos, again, that's a nickname alleged to be Moses, and an email from someone asking for help in sorting out a license for Thanos. The FBI also got access to a cryptocurrency account used by Nosiforos. That account used the Moses Sagala at Gmail address, and the cryptocurrency platform had a photograph of Moses plus a photo of his driver's license on file. The FBI alleges that it found the same photo of Moses and the same photo of his driver's license had been sent from the Moses Sagala at Gmail account to another Gmail account that they allege belongs to him. But if Moses presents a defense saying he was hacked, the most problematic evidence may come from his own brother. As you remember, Moses' brother Gustavo lives in Florida. The FBI reached him, although he isn't mentioned by name in the affidavit. Gustavo voluntarily spoke to investigators on May 3rd, 2022, and he allegedly shared some critical information. First, the affidavit says he told investigators that Moses taught himself computer programming. Gustavo also allegedly showed investigators his phone. On his phone was Moses' phone number, the one that was linked to those online accounts, and a second Gmail address for Moses. They allege that some payments that Moses received for his malware went to his brother's PayPal account. There's yet another interesting puzzle piece too. Moses had traveled to the U.S. at some point, and the government obtained records from Customs and Border Protection. Here's Alexander again. I mean, the, the, the one, one detail that I think is relevant is that, um, yeah, as, as, as stated in the complaint, that there, there are CBP records, Border Protection records, about Sagala's entry into the U.S., and the, the email address in question was uh, moisesagala at gmail.com, which is the address we've talked about. So... The, uh, the literal guy is linked to the literal email address through his physical passage across U.S. borders. That email address would have been provided by Moses himself. The problem is that we don't know when he traveled to the U.S. and gave that to the border officials. The government knows that, of course, but it's not in the criminal complaint. 
But if you provided his email address to Customs and Border Protection after all this hacky stuff appeared in his Gmail account, it certainly raises questions. Like, why would he still be using a Gmail account that, if his wife's statement is to be believed, was probably among those that was hacked? All of this digital evidence doesn't sound good for Moses. Would the government's case be an easy conviction? You know, the, the user attribution outlined in the complaint is weak. It's flimsy. The voice you're hearing is from a digital forensics expert who has worked at complicated cases involving digital evidence. My name is Tony Martino. I'm the director of the Northeast Cybersecurity and Forensic Center at Unica University in Utica, New York. Tony reviewed the government's complaint against Moses. I also brought to his attention the message that Rosani posted on WhatsApp that claims her husband's email accounts had been hacked. Tony says that with digital evidence, you still have to have a strong link between the cyber world and someone's body. It's like the famous cartoon from 1993 in the New Yorker magazine. The dog sits at a desktop computer and says, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. So in this case, how do we know it's not a dog that did this? And, and that's always the key in, in cyber investigations is who, who actually done it, right? Not what user account did it or even what IP address did it, right? Who was at the keyboard and the mouse when it happened? And, and that's been a problem since the dawn of cyber crime. Everything from fraud to hacking to child exploitation to uh, you know, online auction fraud, you name it. All of those crimes, it always comes down to who was actually at the keyboard. And, and so that's always a challenge with, with cybercrime. So looking at the complaint, the vast majority of the user attribution for electronic items rely on other electronic items. So the things I'm looking for here, I'm not seeing. You know, eventually we wanna tie something to a physical human being uh, that's inextricable, right? So to say that, well, Moses has an account in, with PayPal and Moses has a Gmail account and we can see that the PayPal uses the Gmail account as its login source. Okay, <laughs> but, but you're still, you're, you're, you're connecting two electronic points to each other, but if one was untrustworthy, either because it had been hacked or stolen or borrowed or given, uh, et cetera, that automatically makes the other as, as equally untrustworthy. So, so the challenge here is how do you get this back to a, hu a physical human being? And I just don't see where, where the FBI has done that in this complaint. Tony says that because much of the government evidence revealed so far revolves around Gmail is also interesting. If Moses did have his account hacked, what did he do about it? Tony says Google is really sharp about detecting odd activity on accounts and alerting users when there are anomalies. The idea that uh, Moses' email account was hacked years ago and stayed hacked indefinitely through years, through all of these communications, through that account being used uh, in order to then launch other accounts, and him never knowing, never being able to do anything about it, Google ignoring the fact that it was getting 
you know, presumably getting logged into simultaneously from two different locations, which is always a trigger that then launches the Google screen that says, we need to prove you're you, right? Give, we're going to send you a text message or you have to log in using an alternate email, you know, those kinds of things. Um, Google's pretty good about that. Uh, so, the, so the idea that, that Moses is just completely uh, in the blind, has no idea what's going on, someone hacks his email accounts, even plural, um, even though we know it goes beyond email here. Uh, there's a lot of other things in his name beyond email. Uh, and it just, just goes on for years with, with him just absolutely having no clue and being able to do nothing about it is not. That, that isn't believable, believable either. Although we're throwing shade on the government's evidence, there is an important caveat here. The government doesn't have to detail all of its evidence, so we've only seen a few cards in their hand. In this case, it just had to reveal enough to justify before a judge the issuance of an arrest warrant. So there may be much more evidence, including pieces that are stronger, that could tie Moses to the alleged activity. But Tony says the FBI is probably lacking any evidence from an important source, Venezuela. And that's because of the state of affairs between Venezuela and the U.S. right now. The U.S. suspended diplomatic relations in early 2019 with Venezuela in protest of an election the prior year alleged as unfair. For example, data from Moses' ISP would be quite useful, but Venezuela wouldn't be responding to data requests. Tony says that what the government has presented is a lot to swallow, but he also says that it could just as well be accurate. But maybe there is some missing nuance here. And I, I don't, I, I don't want to say that I, I'm not trying to uh, create Moses Zagala's defense for him. Um, there's, I'm, I'm not, and, and I'm not willing to say it's not him. There, there's just too much here. There, there, it seems too too difficult for this to be exactly true the way it's written. Could anyone this smart be that sloppy? And it, and it, and it seems like the answer is no. <laughs> it seems like it's not even possible. You know, one of the things that is largely missing from our, all of our knowledge of this case is the functionality of how a criminal enterprise would be operating in Venezuela. Um, you know, we're looking at this through the glass, the the filters of you know mostly Western society um, and and democracies and the, how the judicial system works. So we're we're viewing it all through those glasses, and I don't know that collectively we understand enough about you know how a criminal enterprise like like the one being alleged would operate in Venezuela. Um, you know, what, would, would there be a need, desire, or, or want to involve people who are not technically involved, but, uh, you know, for, for sake of argument, again, being hypothetical, would there, it, would there be a reason if, if you were... You know the the criminal mastermind behind all of this. Would there be a reason to find a Moses Zagala and impersonate him? One question is if Moses will ever face trial. The answer is pretty much no, as long as he never travels to the U.S. or to a country that has an extradition treaty with the U.S. So if an extradition request was filed, it would likely be ignored. 
Venezuela does have its own laws against cybercrime. What's alleged by the U.S. government would constitute at least three felonies there. So there's also the question of whether Venezuela itself would perhaps try to prosecute Moses on its own after taking a tip off from the U.S. Anna has a source in the public prosecutor's office, and she asked the person about this case. You know, my source was like, no, 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 that's not, that's not something that we're going to, you know, you're not going to see us investigating that by any chance. And we, we don't have no idea what you're talking about. To answer the question of why there is little interest comes back to Venezuela and the extreme conditions under which the country finds itself. I mean, look at Bolivar State where Moses lives. Criminal gangs run illegal gold mines where workers are often believed to be victims of human trafficking, including children. As said before, many people don't have running water. The country's current president, Nicolas Maduro, who is one of two people claiming the presidency, is actually under indictment by the U.S. for allegedly being complicit in the trafficking of cocaine and terrorism. There's a $15 million reward for information leading to his arrest. Then there's other big issues like the continued destruction of the Amazon rainforest, some of which extends into Venezuela. Anna says when she started asking other top journalists about this case, they just expressed little interest. But for people here, it's a very, very tiny you know, like funny kind of story. In thinking about the case and how extraordinary it is, it's made me wonder if there's some other twist awaiting us that we just haven't uncovered. What if the person who sold the ransomware indeed is Venezuelan and is deeply concerned about access to water? What if the person used some of the proceeds to fund infrastructure that improved people's access to clean water? And how would that fit into the person's moral calculus since ransomware is deployed against vulnerable targets such as hospitals? Now, I've deeply wandered down the road of fiction here, of course, but my point is we may never know the deeper story. That is, unless Moses speaks. The closer we thought we got to him, the farther away he felt. His community really circled around him, contesting how such a respected person could be subject to such an accusation. One person told us that after the charges were announced, people briefly brought it up and spoke about it, but now it's no longer brought up. As far as Venezuela is concerned, its case closed. But if you ever find yourself in Bolivar State in Venezuela with a bit of heart trouble and a computer problem, we can tell you who to contact. This episode of The Ransomware Files was written, researched, edited, and produced by me, Jeremy Kirk. It was also researched and reported by the fantastic Anna Vanessa Herrero in Caracas. The production coordinator for The Ransomware Files series is Rashi Ramesh. Special thanks to Alexandra Perez, David Pereira, Tom Field, Matthew Schwartz, and Anna Delaney for other production assistance. The Ransomware Files theme song is by Chris Gilbert of Ordinary Weirdos Records. Other original music in this episode was made by Chris Gilbert, Finley Kirk, and myself. 
If you enjoyed this episode of the Ransomware Files, please share it and leave a review. It'll help keep this project going. The series also has its own Twitter handle, at Ransomware Files, which tweets news and happenings about ransomware. I'm on Twitter at Jeremy underscore Kirk. If you'd like to participate in this project or have an idea for it, please get in touch. The project is looking for other people, organizations, and companies who can share their unique experiences for the benefit of all until ransomware hopefully becomes a thing of the past. Mm